he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. Gotta get me a gay, Mickey. Gotta get a gay. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of In the Details, a celebration of nuance where each week I clean out on all the acting choices, micro moments, and magic in the minutiae that make a scene great. My name is Colin Drucker. Your name is, um, I have no idea what your name is. I'm just guessing at this point. This is like Wheel of Fortune. Your name is RSD Eleni. Um, and today we are continuing our spooky dive into the details and we're talking today about four forgotten final girls and i'm 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 obviously excited about it i'm not excited about it at all but i'm doing this episode anyway no i'm obviously very excited about it because the whole concept of final girls i'm 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 just like obsessed with and i've just always been obsessed with you know i talked about this last week that you know, there had to be a girl and she had to survive and like otherwise what's the point like that's just kind of this like running credo for me when it comes to watching horror movies or, you know, really any movie, if it's some kind of like espionage thriller, I'm like, well, when does the girl show up and does she survive? And is she like part of the finale? If she's just like, you know, captured by the villain and she's tied up and the hero has to save her, I'm like, I kind of like it more when she's a part of the action, you know? Last night, I just watched this um, old like uh, TV movie called Dying Room Only, uh, starring the incomparable Cloris Leachman. Um, and Dabney Coleman as her husband. It's this. Uh, it's written by uh, what's his name, Richard Matheson, and uh, it's this great, great movie about this couple that um, yeah, pulls up to this like um, rest stop in the middle of the desert, and then the wife goes to the bathroom, and when she comes out, her husband is gone, and then like the guy who works behind the counter, and then the weirdo at the ca- you know one customer who's there, played by Nate, played by played by Ned Beatty. Um, they're being like really obtuse and really strange and, and like, you know, something is up and it's great. Like it's, it's a perfect example of like, okay, like it's, it's just up to the woman. It's just up to Cloris Leachman, Cloris Leachman. It's like Ernest Borgnine. It's like no one could have a career in Hollywood with a name like that today, you know, and God bless him, you know? Uh, she's the one who has to figure this out. There is this one, uh, sheriff character who, you know, pops up. And, and does help move things along. She has one ally. But for the most part, you really have the sense of like, this lady is fucked and she needs to figure this out all by herself. And I loved it. Cloris Leachman is so good in it. She's not part of the four Forgotten Final Girls that I'll be talking about today, but I just like had to talk about this movie somewhere. Um, at some point, I'm sure I could do something on, you know, 70s TV movies. Um, I, I've only... I know about a lot of them, but I haven't seen a lot of them. You know, like I know the synopses and like I know kind of like who's in it. And it's like, oh, it's so-and-so from this show. And then they're doing this. Like I think there's there was one I watched uh, a week or so ago called The Victim starring, um, what's her name? Elizabeth Montgomery, who was in Bewitched. And so there's kind of that uh, that sort of novelty of like, oh, look, here she is being like a serious actress, you know? Uh, the movie was okay. The victim wasn't great. She was fine in it, but it just wasn't as exciting as I thought it was going to be. But Dying Room Only is super tense, super exciting. Uh, Cloris Leachman, again, I mean, just like, it. 
it's crazy because it's like it's such a limited set and such a limited story and there's so much of it is just like watching her face journey her like her her whole experience of of you know confusion and frustration and fear and adrenaline and terror and like it it's just like crazy to see it all happen and the ending I'm not going to ruin it but the ending I don't know I totally I told tears were shed it totally worked on me um anyway uh speaking of final girls and and reading synopses and whatnot you know doing some of the research I was doing for today's episode it really brought me back to a lot of the resources that I used to turn to daily on the internet when I was a kid, when I was like, you know, 12, 13, 14, um, even into high school. And it was all these like horror movie review sites. You know, there was, there was the terror trap, which is still exists. I don't think there's any like new updates, but uh, still has lots, you know, full synopses of, of tons of movies. It was such a cataloging experience. And I just discovered but after having recorded the episode, that they had an interview with uh, Marianne Costello, who played Emily in Let's Scare Jessica to Death. And so I was like, ooh, I want Zora Lampert anecdotes yesterday. So uh, she, like she and Zora had like worked together on Broadway and off Broadway, and they were in acting classes together. And she said nothing but great things to say about her and how talented she was. So it's always nice to like hear other people affirm what you think. But uh, then there was, oh, there's uh, Hysteria Lives, which I don't think there's any new posts on the site, but it is uh, a long-running horror podcast. And so they, I mean, that was, again, just like such an education. It's a um, UK-based website. And so there was kind of that whole perspective of like the video nasties, which is something I think it was just in Europe. I don't really know the whole, I, it's something I've I've read about and known about for years, this categorization of the video nasties. It was all of these like movies that were banned. Um, I don't know if it was all over Europe or just in the UK. Like I honestly don't remember, but um, it kind of created this like infamous uh, catalog of movies, some that earned it and some that didn't, that were just like supposedly too nasty for the general public. Um, and so... Uh, there was kind of always that perspective on Hysteria Lives of like, oh, this is one of those, you know. Um, and then, there, oh, there was my other favorite was this blog called Final Girl. Um, and it was this this amazing cartoonist, filmmaker, lesbian, I think her name was Stacy. And uh, I feel like she had the same appreciation for Final Girls and for like the whole trope as I did. And as a teenager, like, I also, like, really appreciated, you know, the subtle, like, reminder of, like, oh, yeah, you're gay as well. Like, oh, there's, like, a queer angle as well. And I, I love, I mean, that blog is still up. And I, I think I went back and, like, read through archives of it, you know, a few months ago. And I'll probably do again because it's just, like, it, it brings, I, it reminds me of, of a time in my life, you know. Uh, I don't know what she's doing now. I should go look it up. But um, that's, I totally recommend it, finalgirl.blogspot.com. Um, anyway, all of that to say is that is where I uh, did a lot of my education and archiving, as well as on IMDb, of course, spent so much time on the Internet Movie Database to uh, figure out, you know, my own kind of catalog of, of movies I wanted to see. And, and of course, developing that aesthetic, developing that criteria of the final girl and figuring out if she survives and kind of getting all of that squared away as much as possible before I watch the movie. Like it's, I talking about it now, like it's one of those things I rarely, I don't think ever really talked about 
until now, until this podcast. I, I, it's something I've known about myself, but I just accept it as normal. But it's like very, I was going to say it was very important to me, but I think it still is very important to me. Like when I, I was looking up like different TV movies that I should check out, you know, because I always wrote them off like, oh, they're probably not as scary. Like it's the same thing as when I was a kid, when my friend Caitlin and I would do those movie nights and we wouldn't want to see anything made before 1970 or after, you know, 1989 because we just felt like, oh, I know what movies like that, you know, are like, you know, they're, they're not going to be what we want. And so I just wrote off TV movies, you know, and I think I think one that I finally watched years ago was that one, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, the one with the woman with the little goblins in her house. That one was pretty fucked up. But um, a lot of some of the ones I'd look up, it was like, oh, and then it has a really grim ending. And I'm like, oh, I didn't really want to like see a movie where like Valerie Harper doesn't survive. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's just like not something I'm interested in. Um, and, and I should say it would literally be Valerie Harper. She was in a bunch of these. She was in one similar to Dying Room Only called Night Terror. And it's kind of like dual in the desert at night. And I saw that a couple years ago and I need to see it again because I remember her being great in it. Like she just, it's like there's Rhoda screaming and driving around in a trench coat in the desert. It's fantastic. Um so, and I feel like the of the four movies that I'm I'm talking about today, and the final girls of these four movies, like I remember first reading about these movies on these sites, and I think that's really where I probably first discovered all of them. Um, I don't think I, I mean I remember seeing them in the video store, and of course eventually renting them. But you know, you learn about them from other people who are like, oh, you know, sorting through all of the obvious choices, all of the Halloweens and Nightmare on Elm Streets, and all of the Friday the Thirteenth sequels is like getting to these other movies that for one reason or the other don't get as much attention and maybe aren't even that good. Like, I'm not saying the four movies that we're talking about today are like these un uncelebrated masterpieces that we need to like get a criterion collection on. They're not terrible either, but, but what I'm most attracted to and interested in this movie is like the, it, it's the parts that it's the sum of, you know, there's little things, there's little, details you know like I'm really interested in what's in the details I love to do a celebration of nuance you know micro moments acting choices magic in the minutia that kind of thing you know whole podcast really um, and so that's that's kind of what we're looking at today um, I also think that there is something about the categorization of of the type of final girl that I find exciting you know or that I'm most drawn to and the the four that we're talking about today they're all they're all flawed i mean they all are unsuspecting heroes or heroines you know as the case may be they don't come into this movie as the the one that we think is going to be the most capable i mean that doesn't mean that we don't know because we know the the system and the formula of these movies. It, it's not to say that we don't know which one is probably going to survive or is more or most likely to be our final girl. You know, like that's always telegraphed pretty early and in really interesting ways. You know, I mean, obviously there's so much of that connection between virginity and survival. And I mean, it's, that's a, I think it's like, it's an interesting concept, but it plays out so much that it becomes like, oh, this is really disturbing. Like we've now really reinforced this idea that like the these girls who are having sex, these girls who are being sexually active or, or embracing their sexuality, like they 
they deserve to die. Like there's something there. There's some math there that I don't, I don't love, you know, like I think, I think going back to, I talked about, was it last week? I, I mentioned that movie class reunion massacre and the character who is kind of playing that, that trope is actually very likable and, and feels very human. And uh, her death scene is like really sad because you're like, Oh God, like this is, this is not just a, a stereotype and this is, you're reminded, you know, uh, that, oh, this is a human being. And um, there's no connection between like whatever, however low cut her shirt is and whether somebody should be stabbing her in the chest with, you know what I mean? Like there's, that's just, that's some crazy horror movie math. And I am totally down for horror movies that don't play by those rules. I, there probably are some, and I would totally love your suggestions recommendations at in the details pod at gmail.com or on twitter at colin drucker of like where are the examples of the final girl who is not who you expect or whether it's intentional you know whether they they want to show like oh yeah that it's the slut who survives you know what i mean and i used slut in quotes you know like that's kind of the the shorthand for it um, and there's no shame in that either. There's no shame in being a slut. Um, but that's just the role. Um, or if it's just like, oh, I, I expected it was going to be this one, but it was actually this one. Like, I, I think that's always, I love that surprise. Like, oh, she was the final girl. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, when I first started writing when I was a kid, I, and this isn't me being some like <laughs> revolutionary. It's just like something that I started doing. And I don't think it was a conscious thing of like, I would write these little short stories in the beginning they were like it wasn't great writing I was nine but it'd be like four or five pages and there were these like slasher stories of like I think the first one was a bunch of kids go to like kids like teenagers like they go to some like ski resort and it turns out like there's some killer there and I think he's killed everybody and then he just kills everybody and the characters that we meet in the beginning of the story and who we think are our main characters kind of unceremoniously get killed throughout the story and the, the final girl is like one of the supporting characters she's like the, the friend of the of the main girl you know what I mean like you would never think she was the one to survive and I always kind of love that of like oh yeah who thought Tasha was the one to live and like not for nothing but like again not to be a revolutionary but typically in horror movies the black characters don't survive that's like this running stereotype that movies play out like the black guy's always like oh you know like of, of course I'm going to be the next to go. Like self-aware horror movies always make that joke. Tasha is black in the story and she survives and it's not because she's black, but I just, I appreciate the fact that I was thinking outside of like what I was seeing in every movie, you know? So let's get into it. Let's talk about these four forgotten final girls and why I think they're forgotten or why I think they're just kind of worth talking about. The kind of criteria, I guess, or the, the way that I'm seeing these four, what I think they all have in common is that they're, there's a running theme of like what they have to muster up, like what it takes to survive. And there is that feeling of like, oh, you don't expect it from them, but there's also not just that of like, oh, wow, she was just like so innocent and demure and then she had to fight back. Like, it's not really just that. I think it's more of just that we have that moment where we realize that, that feeling of like, oh, these are human beings. And we see the nuances in these four of when they are pushed to like go beyond what they thought possible. I feel like each of these movies has a moment that shows them having to go outside of 
outside of what is safe and known in order to survive. And I think that's that's a cool nuance. And I think that's probably what I'm most excited by in horror movies is really seeing what it takes to survive. Like, as I've said before, like, in the, I think in the last episode, like, I am not interested in, you know, a horror movie where nobody survives. I don't see the point in that. I think that's just bizarre to sit through that. And so to me, like, watching something, it's really, like, it's less about who's going to survive, but it's more about, like, what does it take? And what do you have to go through and what do you have to muster up and what comes out of you you know and i so i think that each of these four girls like something something comes out of them at a certain point that's really interesting um and there's just like some some fun nuances in the movie or in their performance that are worth noting and i don't feel like i've heard a lot of people talking about these four so um not that i'm the first but why not be one more so um first things first let's start with 1981's Final Exam. Final Exam is um, very much feels by the books, no pun intended, <laughs> but it, it, it's in some ways like a, a, a very traditional slasher in terms of it's the end of the school year at a small college, most of the campus is empty, there's a few students left, and there's a killer who has, you know, gone on a killing streak at another nearby college and now has made his way to this school and is killing off who's left you know and that's pretty much that's kind of the idea I know that the I think the writer of the movie talked about wanting to really focus on the characters and character development and getting to know these people and I do think obviously that slows the movie down a little bit but I do think it's it is effective in this movie in particular I do like the relationship between uh I think I'm saying her name right. Uh, this is her only film credit, but uh, Cecile Baghdadi as Courtney. She's our final girl. And then Joel Rice playing Radish, who is, um, uh, he's more of a, he actually has like a pretty extensive career as a producer. He only has a few acting credits. He's, I don't know his story. He reads to me as very, he's, he has a very effeminate energy, reads to me as potentially gay, um, but I really liked him, and he's very sweet, and I really liked his relationship with Courtney. I didn't really buy him being attracted to her. I was very sad that he didn't survive. It's one of the rare cases where I really would have been fine with a a final duo. Of You know, I'm, I'm fine with a final duo. I'm fine with a final boy and a final girl together. I just needed there to be a girl there, and I feel like my memory of this movie was that Radish also survives, or at least doesn't die. But um, unfortunately, he does. And it actually leads to a really interesting acting moment. You know, it's where Courtney discovers Radish's body. And she basically spends the entire movie studying until this point. I mean, really, like she, it's totally the classic case of her friends are out there, like getting late and getting drunk. And she is just in her room, you know, thinking about how all the other kids out there have it so much easier than her. And she's got to just like, you know, work really hard to, to, you know, have a future and have a career. And that's all very sweet and whatnot, but it's really driving home this innocent, you know, these are the, these are the qualities that you require to be in a, a final girl. You know, it's really driving those, those uh, nuances home, I suppose. But this one scene where she discovers Radish, she's, you know, he's been killed and like pulled through. I don't remember how he dies, but like he's basically hanging through in the middle of the door frame and like it looks like he's like been pulled through 
like like someone punched through the door and pulled him through the the into the middle of the frame. You get the idea. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like he's hanging there. There's a door. He's in it. <laughs> he's dead. You know. <laughs> I don't know why I can't describe it, but anyway. Um, and so he's hanging there, and then she sees him, and you know this. This happens in a lot of movies, you know, this discovering the body thing and thinking somebody's just joking. But there's some way but the way that she does this scene that really works for me. And that, of course, kicks off the final chase scene. And I, I love nothing more. I mean, that's the other thing is the criteria for a horror movie is like, what's the chase scene like at the end? You know, again, Texas Chainsaw Massacre really sets a standard because the, the chase is extensive, you know? And I love that. I love like, you know, I love a real marathon to the finish line, you know? And so this sets off the, the Courtney running through the halls. It's, it, and again, it's very, it's very standard in, in that, you know, she's running for help. She's screaming. She's banging on doors. I do want to mention the music is is great in this movie. It, I think the, it's not like, oh, my God, all the awards, but it's noticeably good, and it definitely raises the tension a bit in all of the proceedings here. I, I love when she has she does see the killer at one point and then you know she and she runs like I'll give Courtney this like what I love is like a final girl who will run and it's the one thing I guess I could say I don't love about Sally my absolute favorite final girl from Texas Chainsaw Massacre is that she is oh it's she lead foot like girl you need to pick up the pace and apparently this was like Marilyn Burns the actress was just like taking her sweet time and so like I mean, i'm not I no judgments because her willingness to like jump out multiple windows to get a head start gives her all the credit she deserves but uh back to courtney i there's this great sequence where she sneaks into the cafeteria and there's some pretty great cinematography here um and she's making smart decisions as a character like i i don't up until this point so far i'm like okay with her decisions and she sneaks through a window into the cafeteria. She's creeping around. And then the killer just has this kind of intuitive sense of there's no real explanation as to why, but he just like knows she's in there and he starts breaking in. And so then she runs into the kitchen and there's this great tracking shot where she's she's sort of ducking down and, and running kind of through the galley of, or, you know, 
hurrying through the galley of the kitchen watching for him and the camera is kind of on the other side of the counter and the shelves like you know following along with her it's very it makes me think of that that scene in the kitchen in Jurassic Park like it has a very similar tension and it playing with shadows and angles it's it, i just was like wow what a what a great you know little setup and she has this brilliant moment where she makes it look like maybe she snuck into a, a cooler, like a walk-in cooler, and she, you know, lures the killer to that, and then he opens the door to to get her, and it turns out she's hiding in this cabinet behind him, and hits him with a pot, and he falls in, and she she locks the door, and then doesn't realize that there is another door that he then bursts out of, and the, the chase continues, and... I'm, I'm probably spoiling, I guess I should say I'm kind of spoiling what happens because so much of this about being a final girl is what happens towards the end. But Courtney does make the classic mistake of she runs to this like bell tower and of course like runs upstairs. You're like, why are you run? There's so many other places on campus to go. Why are you running to a dead end at the top of many flights of stairs? I don't know why. She starts the movie up there. It's definitely like a, it's a spot she likes to be. And so we, we kind of know, like, okay, all right, like, you know from the beginning, like, something's going to end up here. There's some weird moment where, like, somebody's, like, a farmer father shows up, and and she's up there. He pulls up in, like, a pickup truck. I think it's someone's father. I I have to tell you, I mostly, like, re- I rewatched the movie, but then I, like, just really focused on Courtney. I didn't really care about everybody else. So some guy pulls up. It might be Ned Beatty from Dying Room Only. It seems like a very similar looking character. And he and she's Courtney's up there at the top of the bell tower and she's screaming, Help me, I'm up here, there's a killer. And it's a bit of a Deus Ex Machina in that he's just got like a, you know, bow and arrow in the back of his truck and he just goes right in and and gets up there, you know, too sweet, and the killer's about to kill Courtney, and he's got the bow and arrow, and he's like, Stop right there, shoots the arrow, the killer catches it, you know, just Okay, I guess he's a bit superhuman. You know, it's one of those. And then kills the hick, kills the farmer father. And then Courtney realizes, oh shit, I have to stop running and like really fight back. Like what we saw of her hitting him with the pot and knocking him into the freezer. It's like, you're going to need to step up your game here, sweetheart. And so he's really backing her into a corner at the top of the the tower. And then she she picks up this like, big piece of wood and she just starts hitting him with it and it's you know so it's so it's like okay there you go just keep hitting him and you know to like to, to knock him to fall down because there's this big obviously it's all like you know it's all open like one false move and and they're both just hamburger patties at the bottom you know and so she just keeps hitting him and he's starting to fall and it's like okay all right she's she's got to like push herself like it's so it's just so interesting to see a character get violent you know and so then he loses his grip and he falls. And they absolutely are using the same sound cue from Halloween when Laurie falls down the stairs, you know, uh, uh, screaming the whole way down. They use the exact same sound. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, you have a small credit in this movie. And then Courtney goes downstairs. And of course, the killer is not dead. And this is the moment that that really caught my attention is the knife is of course laying there right next to him. He grabs her ankle. She turns, she grabs the knife and then she just starts stabbing him. And you might think, okay, maybe like once and then he's dead. But I think she stabs him at, at it's, it's double digits. It's at least 10 times 
maybe slightly more. But there is this feeling of like, oh my God, like this is not Courtney anymore. This is not Courtney up there studying in a room anymore. Like this girl is, is, has been pushed to a whole new level. And it's, it's just like, I don't, I don't know if that commentary was being made on purpose. They may have just wanted to have kind of like a big impactful kind of finale, but it was, it was such an interesting 180 from this like really sweet, really passive, you know, studious girl to someone who was stabbing this guy over and over and over. And then at the end, like she just drops the knife and it's such an abrupt ending. She just walks out of the, the bell tower and she sits on the stairs and she puts her, her head in her lap and this kind of very strange music starts to play over it as there's like a freeze frame. But it's, I don't know, the way that you end a scene, the way that you end a moment, it could just be like, oh, we don't know how to end this movie. But there is that feeling of like, okay, she's been wrung out. Like she has been pushed. Like that was the final test, the final exam. She passed it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, and she's done. You know, she's Maybe she's graduated to a new Courtney. Who knows? I'm probably just putting that on this movie, but it's fun to think about. Next up, I want to talk about, and this is a this is an obscure little movie called The Mutilator from 1984. It's also known as Fall Break, but um, that's not that's not quite as appealing in the horror movie aisle. But it does make sense with the theme song of the movie, which of course is called Fall Break. We're going on now. A fall break, walking hand in hand in the moonlight. We'll breathe the sweet soul air. I swear we'll never part. We're going on now. A fall break. There's a whole backstory involving this guy, Ed, and his murderous father. And they're, he and his girlfriend and these two other couples are going to like his, the, his family's like beach house. Uh, for like the weekend and of course the father is is there he's following them there in any event his father is on a rampage killing them one by one you know typical slasher style it's um i think the whole father angle is interesting it's not really what i'm here to talk about today in this movie i uh but i think it's definitely like you know uh, uh, an interesting connection um, other than just like some random killer in in the dark, you know. The main character Ed is played by Matt Mittler, who I'm not super familiar with, but like gorgeous, like just, I mean, just given chest hair a great name. Uh, but today's ep- today's episode, today's little clip, today's little zoom in on the mutilator is unfortunately not about Matt's chest hair. It is about Pam, his incredibly virginal girlfriend, uh, they, they, they sleep with all their clothes on. Like she, it's almost to an extreme of her playing the virginal girlfriend, the virginal final girl, uh, played by Ruth Martinez, who I don't know from anything else. I don't know if Pam is like, or Ruth is like the greatest actress, or this is like the greatest character. She's very much just the like frightened girlfriend damsel in distress for most of the movie. Um, I think if it weren't for the finale or if the or if the finale was really a showdown between Ed and his father, I don't think Pam would have registered one way or the other to me. But what's interesting about this movie is that you kind of would expect that this would really be about Ed confronting his father at the end and that this would really be a completion of this this story of of this like much larger story than what's happening at the house, but what happens is that Ed's father kills everybody except for 
Ed Jr. and Pam, and then there's this confrontation in the garage, and then I think that uh, Ed's father overpowers him, and then he's about to kill him, and then Pam is like, Ed like hit her in a closet, and then like put like this this two by four against it so the door wouldn't open. It didn't make any sense to me. Like why would he, why would he make her? It's one thing to hide her, but it's another thing to like put her somewhere where she can't get out if she needs to. I don't know what that was about, but in any event, Ed is really not of much use to Pam one way or the other the rest of this movie anyway, so it makes sense. There's kind of this long-running thing of he's just not... I just don't think the connection's there. She's not compelled to have sex with him, not that she has to, but maybe she's not as wowed by his chest hair as I am. I don't know. If I was Pam, I'd have had that pink parka vest off a long time ago, but... Uh, that's her body, her choice, and so, uh, and that's my body, mine. And so I, I would have not thought anything of her until she realizes that Ed's about to be killed. She bursts out of the closet to distract his father. The father turns on her, and then he, he stabs Ed in the leg with this, like, spear that he's got. And then that incapacitates Ed and renders him just a simpering mess. And then it's Pam against Ed's father, and it's a she she's throwing these like these there are these fishing lure things she throws this one thing at his head and it just like sticks in his forehead and then he just kind of like pulls it out and continues on again it's one of these like somewhat invincible killers and then she's backed into a corner she and she pulls out this this knife from a drawer and this is really like our first moment of like all right pam uh she you know attacks the, the father and like plunges the knife into him and then is just like digging it in there like she's much like uh, Courtney in final exam like she is not content with just to stab him and step away this killer instinct really comes out of her and and it's interesting the detail of like the blood getting on that little pink parka vest you know the 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 blood on her hands you know like I think that's a cool detail and then she you know we think the father's dead and so she help helps Ed up and there's this whole great sequence where She's, you know, getting him in. He's just crying the whole time. And she's getting him into his car. And then, uh, you know, he's injured. And it's like, oh, we got to just, like, get out of here. And it's just like she's she's taking care of him. She's taking control of the situation. But she's not doing it perfectly. You know, like, she tries to start the car. Give it a few seconds. She's not getting them out of there impeccably. And then they realize, of course, that the father is not dead. He's not still laying there in the garage. And he like climbs up on top of the car. And of course, it's a convertible with a closed, you know, sort of uh, a roof that is easy to penetrate with a huge with a huge axe or whatever this thing is that he's he's attacking them with. And um, she, of course, like then he, re- he he tears open the roof and he and he grabs Ed by the throat. And if it wasn't for Ruth, yeah, it wasn't for Ruth. That's the actress's name. If it wasn't for Pam, <laughs> if it wasn't for Ruth, that's a great one woman show. If it wasn't for Ruth, um, it would be about Ruth Gordon, and I would star in it. Uh, but. Uh, if it wasn't for Pam, again, they'd be fucked because then she realizes, oh, I'll get the cigarette lighter. And then she, like, 
lights that up, but then she drops it. And like that nuance I think is so interesting is that she still like drops it. It's not it's not perfect at any point. And then she manages to burn the father's hand and he uh you know, pulls out of there and then she manages to start the car and uh you know, to back up and like throw him off the back of the car. And then I think they see the police show up. And I don't remember why the police showed up, but it's one of those things. Sometimes the police just show up in these movies. And she thinks, oh, my God, look, they're here. We're safe. We're safe. And then the father climbs onto the back of the car. And what I love is it's like this kind of peak and valley thing with Pam where, like, she musters up all the strength that she can to, like, fight back. And then she, as soon as she sees that she can, like, let go, it just all, like, deflates out of her. But then when she has to, like, you know muster up some more she does because then of course the father is not dead and he starts to climb onto the back of the car again and that's when she realizes okay i gotta end this shit just like courtney did and she puts the car in reverse and she turns around and the the, the favorite nuance is it's like she's looking the father in the eye the entire time as she's driving as she's like speeding backwards towards this brick wall to kill him hanging off the back of the car it's so it's such a, it's a tiny detail. They don't play it up too much, but I think it's really interesting how this character is like, oh, I'm going to watch you die. Like, I'm going to make sure this happens. And then that she's not that, like, badass character, you know? Um, I There is one last shock at the end, and then, you know, there's a, a, a very sort of calm epilogue where we really see, like, oh, man, like, this really knocked the snot out of Pam. Like, she did not handle this well. Um, not that she should have, but like once all this is over, it really like catches up to her. And I think that's cool. I think that's real. I think that I, um, I always appreciated again. And maybe I talked about this with Texas Chainsaw Massacre last week. I'm going to probably talk about that movie too many times. So if I repeat myself, just, uh, forgive me, um, where it really feels like, yeah, this is what would happen. This is how you would be at the end of something like this. So um, I appreciate that. It's not like a brilliant movie, but I think that finale is is very surprising and so much more tense than I expected. And um, and and Pam, you know, wearing that pink parka vest, she turns it out. We're going on now. I swear we'll never Let's talk about Humongous. Mm. It's, uh, it's a horror movie. It's not a sexy horror movie. It's just a horror movie. So don't get too excited. It's from 1982. It is Canadian. I don't know if you know this. Have I talk- I've talked about this on this podcast. I talk about it on All Right Mary all the time. I think I've talked about it here, that I love anything Canadian. And Humongous is indeed Canadian. Um, it feels like I mentioned those video nasties before, and it feels like a slightly tamer version of this wackadoo uh, video nasty from Italy called Anthropophagus or the Grim Reaper, which is about these like five people who get like stranded on a Greek island with this like insane huge cannibal, and it is. It's, I don't, I've seen it once all the way through, and there are definitely some pretty awful moments. There is, I'm not going to tell you what they are because you don't, maybe you don't want to hear them. They're pretty gross, but um, it's, I'm glad that's not what this movie was. I'm glad I didn't have to watch all that again. Uh, in this one, it is again like it's people getting stranded after a shipwreck 
on Dog Island. And I will tell you this, that if you, it is called Dog Island, there are some dogs in the movie. There are a couple of things that are not great that happen involving a couple of dogs. It's not, I didn't love that part. I just feel like, you know, there's that website of like, does the dog die.com humongous. Yes, it does. It's not a dog that was like on the trip with them. It's not like some fluffy, sweet little thing that like is shipwrecked and then killed. It's, it's, you know, there's all these feral dogs on the Island. So, uh, I just give you that warning. I just feel like I'd like to know that. The final girl in this movie is played by, uh, Janet Julian. She plays the character of Sandy and she has, uh, she has sort of like a Barbara Hershey quality. It, it, it's, uh, it's nice. She, I mean, I think she had somewhat of a career. I think she, she played Nancy Drew in some, I don't know if it was a mini series or a short lived series, but she had a little bit of a career. Uh, I also feel like you don't meet enough Janets these days. The name Janet feels so, um, it feels like a name that like you don't meet. Oh, here's baby Janet. You know what I mean? I, I, I love the name Janet. It, but to me, when I hear the name Janet, and the more I'm saying it, the more it's like losing meaning. But whenever I hear that name, of course, I think of like, oh, a character in like a horror movie from the 80s or the 70s. Uh, she's, I like her. I think that she's actually, uh, she has this like, to me, this kind of iconic outfit. It's this like sort of pink halter top and these slim little jeans. It's just like, it's a, it's a great look. Um, I think her character supposedly like does, did some modeling or something, but she feels like, she feels like the adult in the room. She definitely feels like, in a way, I understand why she'd be the final girl. Like, I think that she has her shit together the most, but not in a way that feels boring once she has to do all of that. You know, like, once she has to be the final girl, you know? Uh, the I think the most interesting little nuance in terms of, like, how she handles the situation of, of fending off this this guy, you know, this this killer who is the backstory is that, like, his... I, I think his mother was was raped and he's the product of that. And I think there was some, maybe he had some issues, you know, from birth. And he and his mother lived alone on Dog Island. Like he's never kind of seen the rest of the world. And um, yeah, I mean, I think there's just this idea that like then his mother had died and he's like left alone and he's kind of just this like sad, misunderstood monster, you know? And, and there is kind of a, a Friday the 13th quality, you know, this idea of, like, this abandoned, neglected, tragic child. And there's, I, I would say the idea, to be fair, is probably being lifted from Friday the 13th Part 2, where Janet finds the mother's diary and figures out, like, what the story is. And then there is a confrontation where she's in the house and the killer is uh, approaching her in a room and she's sitting there in the mother's rocking chair and she's pretending to be the mother and talking to him like he's her mother. And the same thing happens in Friday the 13th part two with Ginny played by the incomparable Amy Steele, who I'd love to talk about in another episode because I, I, I really love her and I love that final girl in terms of Friday the 13th girls. But it's um, in Friday the 13th, Ginny is also like a, uh, she's a, some kind of child psychologist or some kind of professional where it makes sense with her character, you know? And like, she like puts on the mother's sweater and it's all very, um, it's a great moment, but in humongous it, you know, Sandy's a model. You know? <laughs> she's smart, but she's not studying child psychology. And she's sitting there in the, in the rocking chair. And what I think is so cool about it is how, 
she's just barely pulling this off. And you can tell that she doesn't even really believe this is working. And, and there's these great shots of her hands gripping the armrests of the rocking chair. And I think seeing that kind of tension and seeing like how much she's struggling to keep this up and, and using that detail to show it, I think is really cool and really smart. Uh, I think this movie got a lot of flack because it's very dark. And I think once it was, you know, a lot of scenes set at night. And I think once it was transferred onto VHS and people were renting it in video stores, it was like they couldn't see anything that was happening, especially in the climax. And so I think a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, whatever. You couldn't even see what was happening. I don't even know if it's a good movie. But I found since then, like I found online, there's been, you know, uh, DVD, like remastered versions, whatever, where you can see everything just fine. You know, like it's dark, but like dark in a way where it's like, oh, that makes sense. Okay, like I can still see that's just like a dark scene. Um, And so like... I think that it's worth revisiting if you've heard bad things about it because it's actually like a very effective movie. The The final confrontation is uh, is pretty exciting. It's pretty intense. And there's this great moment that's very similar, uh, very similar to Courtney in Final Exam, but even more so similar to Pam in The Mutilator of it's like the way that Pam like had to like watch him while he was like dying. There's a similar thing that uh, at the very end, I mean, there's, you know, the the boathouse explodes with the killer in it. And you think that, you know, that's killed him. But then of course he pops up and chases Sandy up the dock. And then she pulls this like signpost out of the ground and uh, he like basically falls on it and she impales him on it. And then as he's laying there dying, she's like crawling towards him. And it's very animalistic in a way. Like she's, it's like a a cat crawling towards its prey. And it's so cool to kind of see like that this does bring out something primal. That This does bring out this like animal need to survive. But then as she gets closer to him and she sees that he's just this like charred, pathetic, dying, misunderstood monster, you know, she just starts to cry. And it's, um... It reminds us, like, yeah, this is all, like, this is all just so fucking sad, isn't it? And my favorite thing about this movie, though, is, you know, I, at the very end, like, the last shots of the movie, it's, like, you know, early dawn, and she's sitting at the end, edge of the dock, and just, like, shivering and just staring out, and it's, like, she's just, like, watching for somebody to come rescue her. Like, they, the boathouse exploded, like, surely somebody is going to, is going to see this. Someone is going to have, like, realized that something happened. And, like, you know, I, I don't know. I'd like to believe that eventually uh, some rescue ship pulls out through the fog and finds her. But I think the final shot of just, like, her looking just shocked and, like, just processing, like, what just happened to her, similar to the end of The Mutilator, I just think is is very realistic. This is This is how it leaves you. The final forgotten final girl that I want to talk about today is from 1981's Just Before Dawn. Um, And that's the character of Connie, played by Deborah Benson. Uh, Just Before Dawn is more of like a deliverance-style slasher. It's about uh, these five people who take their camper up a mountain to one of them, this, this guy Warren, he has a plot of land up there, and so they're taking the camper up there to do some camping. And meanwhile, there's some there's some uh, backwoods drama going on, and uh, 
that we know from the start that like okay there's some big overweight you know killer on the loose and he's chasing this guy through the woods and he's and we know that he's just killed his brother i think anyway we we know from the start that they're walking into some crazy shit and you know i i should probably do more of like here's a concrete backstory but i want to give you a little bit of mystery a little bit of something to discover while i go ahead and like tell you what happens at the end of these movies <laughs> and so the characters there's warren there's his girlfriend connie played by uh deborah benson and then there is uh what's the other guy's name it's played by chris lemon who's jack lemon's son and then there's his girlfriend megan and then there's this fifth character of daniel who uh originally there's been different iterations of the script but uh he originally had a, a girlfriend character who got written out and then the idea was that daniel was gay and i always kind of got that feeling i was like he feels like the queer of the group and i i like the idea that that was kind of there and probably stripped out i think it was pretty much stripped out of the final product but the the intention was there you know and you know they on their way up the mountain of course they cross paths with disaster movie legend george kennedy who warns them not to go up there but you know as the as it goes in these movies you never listen to the old guy who tells you not to go up there and then they get picked off by not just one overweight insane backwoods killer but two because he's got a twin brother which they reveal in this amazing sequence which unfortunately leads to megan's demise and megan she's a she's an interesting character she's just interesting to watch she's just got this big uh, mane of red hair and and she's she's got a very interesting face she's it's a it's a great casting choice um but the the scene where she thinks that she's hiding from the killer after she sees him kill daniel and she's hiding in this old church and she's watching out the window and then you realize like oh my god there is someone right behind her and it's that's when you realize there's a twin uh it's it's a freaky sequence but in the the real kind of like i think through line of the movie is actually about Connie. It really is this journey that she goes on. She, from the beginning, is very... She doesn't really fit in with the rest of the group in a way. There is something a little bit awkward about her. There's something where, like, she's feeling things differently than everybody else is, you know? She has this sensitivity that Warren is definitely not uh, in possession of, and I think it creates a lot of conflict because I think he just doesn't he doesn't realize the ways in which he just is not connecting with her or the ways in which he is seeing the world so differently from her that it, like, I think puts her off. Like, I think that she, I, there's that part of you that realizes, like, okay, I don't think this relationship's even working, you know? And even the way that she's dressed in the beginning, she's wearing, like, slacks and, and button-down shirts and she has her hair tied up and there's this there's this tension. And there's also just this way that she's like connecting with nature. There's this way that she's like picking up on something. The whole movie, there's all these different shots of her just, it's as if she's intuitively picking something up. I think we're kind of watching throughout the movie this awakening with Connie. You know, there's this part of her that's coming out and whether by necessity or preference or a little bit of both, you know? And there's, of course, there's like a fake out scene where uh, Connie and Megan and Daniel are waiting back at the campsite while the other two go back to the camper to get the rest of their stuff. And then they come back and it's late 
and they start wrestling the branches and the three of them at the campfire don't know what it is and it's all just like a you know a gotcha moment but Connie talks about how she in that moment when that happened like she didn't do anything she froze up I was like a frightened little baby last night oh come on Connie I did a stupid thing what can I say I was helpless so were Megan and Daniel. No. Megan took the knife. She didn't just sit there. It's just a game, baby. But Megan, I'm the one who goes camping all the time. I know how to pitch a tent. I know how to start a fire. But I couldn't pick up the knife. But then we see in the climax of the movie, uh, Warren is going to go back to the camper he has to find the keys on the body of Jack Lemon's son, of Chris Lemon. I can't believe I can't remember his character's name, but I just like don't feel like stopping and looking it up, you know? So um, it's something to go look up. Uh, but he has to go find the body and get the keys to the camper so they can get out of there. At that point, I think that Connie has really shut down, you know? she's It's reminiscent of, like, Barbara in the original Night of the Living Dead. Like, she's just, like, sitting there, blanket around her shoulders, just she's accepted, like— Megan and Daniel are dead. Warren has not accepted that. He doesn't accept it the entire movie. But she just knows. She's like, yeah, we're we're fucked out here. And I think what she knows even deeper is like, we're fucked out here if like you're the one who's going to save the day. And so Warren heads off to the camper. And I think that uh, the there's the whistle that's also on the body. And I think Warren's like, oh, I'm going to go get the whistle. So you'll hear me listen for it. But of course, the killer has already taken the whistle or has one. And so there's that fake out of she's hearing the whistle and she's looking around and she thinks, oh, there might be something wrong. But of course, it's not. It's not Warren. It's the killer. And then he is chasing her through the woods. And and then she like climbs a tree, which is like the only time I've ever seen that happen in one of these movies. And we know from an earlier piece of dialogue that she does do rock climbing. Like this is not out of this is not surprising that Connie's able to climb a tree like this but she climbs up the tree and so he starts trying to chop the tree down and she's up there just screaming eventually he does chop the tree down and she starts to you know it's this like really tense brief chase where he's like right on top of her and she's trying to crawl away and eventually gives up like she just like falls into like child's pose and 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 he is like about to kill her and then of course that's when the ranger shows up just in time and shoots him and it it's an interesting moment right because it's like even in that moment connie gives up like she's not able to get away like she's not able to fight back she still never fights back she crawls up a tree like a frightened you know squirrel you know what i mean so it's not until this final scene where she and warren go back to the camp campsite to get all their stuff and she comes out of the tent and she's got a full face of makeup on and she's got this look on her face like she knows and I, this is my interpretation of it she has been tuning into this like tuning into nature tuning into this experience tuning into this intuitive part of herself that knows that it's not over and that she doesn't know what it is but she knows that the danger they're in is not over and i think that she's prepared herself for it because like this is her opportunity to finally fight back i think that she wants it to happen 
And of course, Warren just thinks that she's prettying up for him. He's he's so naive. Like he's like, oh, you know, we'll 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 leave Megan and Daniel's stuff here for them, and they can come get it in the morning. Like he just is so delusional. And then of course, the other killer approaches and slashes Warren in the stomach. And it the way that the whole thing happens, we never see Connie surprised or shocked or frightened. The next thing we see of her is her attacking the killer. Like. I think that she was trying to create this moment of like, basically it's this like meta moment of like, here I am being sexy with my boyfriend in the woods. This is when a killer would attack. You're like, she is luring him in. And so when he shows up, you know, she is, she's ready to fight. She dives on his back. He throws her off. She jumps back on. Like she, she's like, she's attacking him. Like she's not fighting back. She's fighting him. And at one point, like he gets her in this like, this death grip and he's got his arms wrapped around her and she's um and you think he's gonna like crush her to death and you warren's just laying there injured he can't do anything he's basically like ed and the mutilator and we see her like almost about to die and then we see this fight come back in her we see her kicking and screaming and like and and fighting to get out of his grasp and it's so cool it's so like it, it feels so human, you know? And you don't expect those moments in these kind of movies. You don't expect to see something so real and so human. And then he drops her, and then she dives back into his arms, and she, like... And it's as if she's, like, hugging him. Like, you like, you just came back from the war, you know? And she's got her arms and legs wrapped around him. And she climbs up him. It's, it's cool, right? It's like she was climbing the tree before, and she's doing it again. She's climbing up his body. And then she shoves her entire fist down his throat and you know again that idea of being all kind of gussied up you know having the makeup on looking like this you know quote unquote the slut character who who would die in this moment for her to be playing that image and then to to fight back and have this moment where she's penetrating him and she's overpowering him I mean it's just like it's wild and it's such like a like oh what what a turn of events you know and um i know that like there were different you know script changes like i'd read an interview on the terror trap about kind of what the intentions were with this movie and that i think the original writer didn't love the idea of him being kind of throat fisted to death and uh, i guess the idea behind that was like what's what they wanted to do was a death scene they'd never seen before in a movie um, and, and of course, yeah, like it obviously is, is very surprising. And I think it's one of the things people talk about the most when they talk about this movie, but I think the meaning that you can read into it because there definitely is a Connie journey. And I think it's very much about her having to fight back and her having to realize that, um, this is what it takes to survive. But I also feel that there is this obviously very clear sexual, uh, you know, lens through which you can see this. And there's, a, and the fact that she is shoving her fist down his throat, the fact that she is penetrating him uh, is such a, it's such a fuck you, you know, to like so many tropes in these movies. It's such a, and, and for it to happen in 1981 before so many of these movies even came out is very clever. So of course the killer dies. And uh, I also think it's very interesting how she just stands there and Warren, who's interested, in, who's injured has to, like pull himself up and hobble over to her. Um, there is this moment where 
she hears one more like before that happens there's like this this rustling in the in the nearby bushes and she thinks oh my god there's one more and and she lets out this like guttural whimper and it's really interesting because it's like does she have one more fight in her like can she she is still just human did she empty her tank on this guy of course it ends up just being the the sister of them the sort of you know backwoods mysterious girl in the white dress not to be confused with the mysterious girl in the white dress in let's scare jessica to death um and and they have this like really interesting silent conversation where basically with her eyes and the blood running down the side of her mouth and her you know gooey hand connie's like this shit's done i took care of it we're done you can go you know no thanks to you and so the girl runs away and that's when warren starts to cry and and has to kind of muster his 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 self up to kind of get over to her and like she doesn't concede to him she doesn't baby him it's it's it feels like such a deliberate choice and what i love most of all is is in this moment of her being empowered the the campfire is out and the smoke is billowing up and it's totally i mean to me i just see this like there's a new pope in town assholes you know what i mean like there's a new connie in town and i i think um there was originally all of these religious themes in the movie and all of these ideas um tied to you know the these backwoods folks being these religious zealots and so i feel like it's not too far off the map to have this smoke rising as the final shot have some similarity to like announcing the new pope <laughs> i mean i'm reading it that way you know um but i also feel like in line with the title of the movie it's also like it's a new day for Connie. You know, it's the dawning of the age of a new Connie. <laughs> so, uh, and I love that. I think to see that in this kind of movie is um, is really exciting because I just didn't expect it. And that, my friends, is four of probably many forgotten final girls. I I think there's so many more worth talking about, so many more I'm happy to talk about. I would love to hear who your favorite forgotten final girls are, or just favorite final girls in general. Uh, You can drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Colin Drucker. You could leave me a really sweet review on iTunes with five golden stars at the top of it, which uh, would, would just make my October fantastic or whatever month you're listening to this in you know um, next week I am so excited I feel like I'm so excited of course I'm so excited we are going to be talking about what happens when the call is coming from inside the house uh, and that's all I'm gonna say about that but anyway that is all I have for you this week and I look forward to celebrating more horror movie acting choices micro moments and nuances this month with you in the details. Thanks, everyone. Bye.